You could call Andrew Sims the brain of Bahrain. As the co-founder of N-Digital, Sims is helming the fastest growing and most integrated banking as a service card processing and payments group in the Middle East, even as he leverages the region's growing commitment to off the charts fintech innovation. And who has him? Why, no one else but the two Ds, here on Dave and Darm Demystify. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. Dave and Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. Welcome, everybody. And today, joining us from Bahrain, we have Andrew Sims from N Digital. Andrew, welcome. Introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you're up to. Delighted to. So thanks, Dave, Darmesh. Great to be here with you today. Hopefully, I'm going to get the first question right. So my name is indeed Andrew Sims, <laughs> co-founder of a group of companies called N Digital. We're a multi-company fintech group based in Bahrain and operating in the digital financial services and software as a service space. For people listening, just give us a bit of your background and tell us a bit about your story. And then, you know, we're really interested to hear a bit more about what NDigital is doing in Bahrain. Yeah. So, well, I don't know how long we've got, right? If we start after primary school, maybe. So, uh... let's <laughs> <laughs> try and think about the best word to describe my personal story. I think meandering is probably a good word. <laughs> I mean, I'm a child of the 1970s, was brought up in a working class neighborhood of Southeast London. The things that I do now as a business and, you know, personally, even this podcast that we're doing, we're just completely, this was Star Trek stuff when I was growing up. By the time I left school in the kind of fast-paced, yuppie-driven era of the 1980s, there was really so much going on in the world and what seemed like so many opportunities that the kind of traditional route of you know, go to university, get a degree, do a master's, pursue graduate employment. For me, it just seems so incredibly dull. And so I would say now, probably not to my detriment, but other people told me at the time it was going to be a disaster. But I took the university of life route. In my late teens, I spent quite a lot of time traveling around Europe, working in France, Spain and Portugal. When I got back to the UK, I kind of in my early 20s, potted around a few different industries, dealing in real estate, and then got involved in a business development role in a printing company that was working with advertising media and publishing houses in the West End. And I've been doing that for about a year or 18 months and, you know, decided that I could do that a lot better for myself than I could working by people that knew what they were doing and had been doing it for 35, 40 years. And so I started my first company when I was 25, and that was a printing and design and consulting business. And I focused on that for about five years. Towards the end of that, I was doing some work for some guys that were really entrepreneurial, like-minded people. We were all about the same age. They were involved in an investment banking consulting business. 
and was starting to throw around ideas about different startups. This was at the very back end of the first dot-com boom, like 1999. And we got involved in a startup they were planning to do in the gifting space. Initially, an idea around dot-com e-commerce gift vouchers fell absolutely flat on its face, not unaided by the dot-com bust. But there was some merit to the things that we were pushing. And eventually through some kind of pivoting and product development work, we started launching and running paper gift voucher programs for shopping mouth. And that in turn led us by sort of the mid-2000s, 2004, into looking at very early gift card programs that were coming along. And by 2005, we'd launched some of the very first MasterCard prepaid card programs in Europe. In fact, if I remember correctly, they were the first instant load and activation prepaid cards to be retailed over a point of sale anywhere in the UK. That business was called FlexiCard, and we grew that to about 65 prepaid card programs in Europe, UK, and just started to open up the Middle East while I was there. Now, midway through the evolution of that company, myself and the same group of guys were looking at some of the problems that we were having with our gift card programs, and they were really around capabilities at the card processing level. And so, you know, we did what everybody that is possibly certifiably mad decides to do at some point in their life. And we decided to build a card processing platform from scratch. None of us having any idea whatsoever about card processing. That company was originally called Global Processing Services, now better known as GPS. And it's probably one of the largest modern issuer card processors, certainly in Europe. And so I co-founded GPS with three other guys in Dubai back in 2007. And the original idea at that time was for us to develop an internal card processing capability for the gift card programs we were already running. But by the time we got the platform, you know, the core of it developed and certified and we were running our own gift cards on it. By that time, what was, you know, then the fledgling prepaid card industry, there was so much traction starting to come around that, that we realized that there was a much, much bigger opportunity for that company as a processor than there even was for the gift card company selling gift card programs. I mean, for anyone that's got gray hair, I can see at least one person on the call. <laughs> Well, at least you got hair, Darmish, so... Uh... Yeah, no, but, but anyone that was around at that time, you'll know the prepaid card industry, late 2000s in the UK and Europe, is essentially what drove the rise of neobanking out in Europe and most of the other use cases that now get loosely grouped together as fintech all came out from prepaid and different aspects of prepaid program management or financial control and reconciliation or credit provisioning by non-banks, et cetera, et cetera. I left that whole business. I sold my shares to two of the other co-founders. In fact, you know, within a period of about 18 months, the four co-founders split, two of us left and two of them carried on running the company. And in 2013, I was doing some consulting for MasterCard in the Middle East, looking at prepaid and new consumer opportunities. And that's when I met my co-founder in a digital for Adnunu and the rest, as they say, is history, or it certainly was the start of this period of history in what has now become the digital group of companies. Incredible, incredible story. And, you know, interesting, as you say, about the prepaid card being really one of the drivers of those early fintech experiences, as you say. Yeah, very much so. Bringing us up to date. So what does NDigital comprise of and what are you looking to do? So within the group, and I'll come back to the backstory in a moment of how we got to this stage. But within the group currently, there are four separate businesses that are operating under the umbrella of NDigital, which is our North Star, if you like. 
So under that North Star, we have Infineos Financial Services. That's a licensed and regulated payment services provider based here in Bahrain. The majority of the business that that company operates is providing an enablement platform for banking as a service and embedded financial services use cases to customers that are operating their own products in a variety of different use cases. We have a product that we built ourselves and is now operated as a separate company alongside Infineos Financial Services called Apizo. Apizo is the fastest growing provider of virtual card B2B supplier payment solutions to the travel industry in the Middle East and Africa. So we pretty much dominate this region. We're triple digit growth year on year, and we're now really starting to open up and get a base of good quality customers in Europe. Alongside that, we have a software development infrastructure company, which is called Infineos Solutions. So this is essentially the IP box and the software development house and infrastructure provider that provides all the technology, a digital account platform, issuer card processing platform, payment gateway technology, and all of that sits beneath and facilitates the operations of the other businesses that are in the group. So that's really the powerhouse from a tech and infrastructure perspective. And we also are now starting to sell SaaS and licensed product solutions through Infineos Solutions. And in fact, that licensed product sales kind of growth strategy brought us into the fourth company, which is a ventures business called N Digital Ventures. And through that company, we own a stake in a NASDAQ-listed Californian fintech called AppTech. They licensed our technology stack, and we work with them at a board level on product and go-to-market strategy. So there's a very broad base now, not only of pure play you know, technology companies, but also licensed and regulated financial services and some product use case ourselves, where we've actually gone very deep on one particular segment, which is you know, payments in the travel industry. So on the BAS side of things, I'm just interesting, what kind of license do you have? Is it a full banking license that includes lending or is it an e-money license or how far do you go with a license? Yeah. So the market here is not as sophisticated as the EU. You know, some may say there's already too many banks in Bahrain. And so giving away, you know, full retail banking licenses from the regulator, it's unlikely and the capital requirements are pretty intensive for a business like us, as you would imagine. They do have a licensed category called payment services provider, and it's about as close as you can get to an EMI license. So it provides that combination of electronic money and payments, uh, you know, payments institution licensing. So you can act as an issuer and an acquirer. The other license that we carry here is a license called card processor. And that card processor license is essentially what enables us to operate the technology platform as a standalone solution to service third parties. So they're the two licenses that we hold here in Bahrain. Is that why you broadened out into these sort of other businesses looking to essentially sweat the assets that you've developed yeah. and, you know, look at a more global play? I mean, it's very interesting that you got that relationship with a fintech in the US yes. as well. So is that sort of your way of kind of looking to broaden the appeal more globally? It's exactly that. I mean, I think one of the reasons... If we go through the backstory a little bit, you know, we started uh, as NEC Payments, which was just one company. So when we set this business up, it was just one business. And all of the stuff that I've described has then kind of stemmed and, and rooted from that. What we kind of realized is because of some of these challenges around passporting and cross-border issuing, 
you know, this concept of passive issuance with the scheme, which the schemes really don't like, particularly within consumer business. We realized that what we wanted to do was to focus on use cases where us being able to operate and scale a business globally from this location here in Bahrain was feasible. Some of the challenges that fintech companies face themselves are almost like self-initiated in some ways because they try and think we're going to disrupt and we have to disrupt because we're fintechs and that's what fintechs do. But they kind of realize that regulated financial services isn't that easy to disrupt and then they kind of fall over because they've predicated their growth strategy on being able to get regulatory license changes and do stuff that, you know, realistically they're not going to be able to achieve. And we didn't want to fall into that trap. And that's one of the reasons why we focused on the travel segment, because both of the major payment schemes, MasterCard and Visa, recognize that the travel segment is a huge opportunity, particularly for, you know, high velocity, low value. And when I say low, I don't mean consumer spend, but I mean sort of ATV somewhere around the three to 500 US dollar mark. There's a huge amount of opportunity there for cards to disrupt bank transfer and other types of legacy payments. And they've both developed products that enable issuers to operate global cross-border issuing. Not only they permit global cross-border issuing, but also they've put in place commercial frameworks for those activities where, you know, some of the challenges around the operating model with, you know, cross-border assessment fees and multiple other charges that apply that are different when you're issuing domestically or cross-border, they flatten that out as well. And so travel has been really important for us. And so, you know, we're now onboarding. I think we've got customers in our Apizo business from 32 different countries, and we're serving all of them with all of the appropriate regulatory permissions and payment scheme permissions in place from Bahrain. And when you build into that, the relationship that we've put together with some of our key banking partners, like Citigroup, for example, then City are able to offer us under the umbrella of a relationship manager here in Bahrain, access to cash management and settlement accounts in many, many currencies and different locations. So we're now operating bank and cash management and treasury and settlement relationship with City in Bahrain, the UAE, Dublin, London, as well as in New York for US dollar settlements. And then alongside that, really the second part of that is that SaaS issuing and licensed product stuff, because then it means that we can take you know, the best of the technology that we've got to offer, and which although we're Bahraini and it sounds like a bit of a contradiction in terms of us coming from this, you know, very small place in what is a very small region and not that well known for homegrown technology, but we have got a very, very good quality technology platform that does stand up, you know, against the big international processors and can compete on, you know, product and feature and infrastructure perspective. And so these are things that allow us to grow much further afield than just the constriction that we have. Whereas to come back to Dan's point there, if we were focusing just on BAS or embedded financial services, then we would be limited to only operating within Bahrain or going through that quite painful process of identifying banking sponsors that we can work with as bin sponsors in other markets that we can then go and ride on top of, which A, it's a challenge and also introduces risk you know, vendor risk or partner risk into your model. Whereas at the moment here in Bahrain for our BAS, we're pretty lucky because we've got that full vertical integration. So it's our technology layer, our regulatory license and our payments in principal memberships. And, you know, there isn't anybody else that can go and screw it up for us other than ourselves. So from that perspective, you're right. It's about international growth play. How long has the BAS been going and how many companies have you got here at the moment, can you say? Yeah, that's interesting. So 
when we first got to that fully vertically integrated state that I've been talking about, you know, our own license, our own payment scheme membership and our own issuing, this was probably 2018. And we spent all of our time, efforts and money on developing the B2B payments business at Pisa. But then, of course, COVID came along. And, you know, we all remember that the travel industry was absolutely decimated. And so was our volume. And in fact, I've been involved in issuer processing businesses since, well, 2007, when, when I co-founded GPS. And, you know, I've never seen anything like it. The majority of our issuing business as a principal member and a processor was in the travel space because that was where our major product was. And we processed net settlement refunds for three months on the trot. So the entire flow of money within our business just completely went backwards. And during that period, of course, anyone that understands the dynamics of commercials with the payment schemes, not only your settlements that go backwards, but your revenue goes backwards as well. And so the revenue that we generated through interchange effectively was just going back in the opposite direction. We had to do a bit of a pivot. And that's when, you know, we took a long, hard look in the mirror and thought, what have we got here? What are our assets? What are our capabilities? What have we got that we can monetize where we're not going to be just reliant on this travel product? And that's where we started looking at banking as a service. I'll just give you a couple of examples of programs that we operate. The first one that we got live in 2020 as our immediate response to COVID was working with STC. So Saudi telecom company is the largest mobile network operator in Bahrain. And so they were running a QR code based mobile money wallet. They wanted to transition that towards a neo-banking type product to follow what the mothership STC pay in Saudi had been doing. They wanted to get themselves to a similar product standard. And so we facilitated that for them. So we now run the back end for neo-banking application. So it's mobile-led, virtual cards, physical cards, Apple Pay. We have tokenized Android payments. That's now one of the largest non-bank financial services products in Bahrain. And then if we kind of bring the story more recently and to a completely different use case during the second half of last year with Binance to launch the region's first crypto-backed debit card. And so we're using our license to issue card processing. And then we've built, you know, a real-time external authorization link between us and Binance. So the Binance do real-time crypto to fiat conversion. They give us the go, no go on balance during our authorization handling, which keeps us isolated from dealing in any of the crypto aspects. Now, it was really interesting and it was great to be able to do that from here in Bahrain as well, because Bahrain was one of the regulatory jurisdictions that were very first into the market with digital asset and crypto regulation. So Binance obtained their first regulatory license globally here. And so we're able to operate a crypto-backed debit card that is 100% operated under the purview and control of the regulator in a scenario where crypto is still seen as being a bit like the Wild West in some markets. It's kind of interesting, that whole thing of Bahrain sort of taking a real lead around that. I mean, it brings us to something which you mentioned a bit earlier on, which is I'm spending a bit of time in the UAE and Dubai and Abu Dhabi, and you get a real sense in the Middle East that the center of gravity for fintech is kind of headed that way. Yeah. And there's a real energy, which I think is kind of undeniable. So I just wondered, have you got any thoughts as to why the Middle East has suddenly woken up to the fintech opportunity and why there's so much energy and actually investment going into it? Yeah. You have to look at the economic strategies for the governments around this region. And so we're here in the GCC. There is a general 
backdrop of very, very rapid economic change. All of the economies in this region have been built on petrodollars, you know, since the 1970s and 1980s, when the GCC, you know, really started to become a powerhouse and the economy starting to grow. All of the regional governments in the Middle East or GCC, if we keep the conversation around the GCC bar none, have got very, very aggressive economic strategies to diversify away from pure petrodollars into other segments. You know, so whether that's clean industry, clean energy, services industry, tourism, of course, the UAE has very much led the rise of the Middle East as being a tourism hub, not only for inbound, but also that hub and spoke approach that the major airlines in this region all now operate, led by Emirates, but with Qatar and Netahad as well, following similar strategies. Above all of that, there is you know, really concerted effort to drive startup and entrepreneurialism. And so it's all very actively nurtured and supported. And so you put that on top of the general acceleration that we're seeing in digital transformation here in the Middle East, partially, I would say, believe it or not, because of the weather, because it's so hot, there's a real movement towards digital platform businesses. So there's a delivery app or a services app for everything here. And that's driving adoption of digital payments, you know, not only on the merchant side for payment gateway business, but also digital payment mechanisms on the consumer side. And I think as well, we've got this generational change that's going on that we can see in other markets. Consumers are becoming younger and they're all very digitally native. Young consumers in this part of the world are probably blessed with higher disposable incomes than in other markets. And so that's really starting to drive change amongst the youngest parts of the demographic. And then the older generations have been pulled into that process of change and transformation away from cash and you know checks and bank transfer onto more instant digital payment methods, particularly as a result of COVID. It's another one of the benefits that COVID has had yep. on our industry is that rapid transformation and the effect that social distancing had on everybody's purchasing habits. So I think you get all of those things going on together at the same time, especially when they're being pumped by countries like the UAE that have just got such a massive, successful PR machine running as well. Then it's not too difficult to see, you know, why the UAE becomes a hub for this stuff. I mean, the one to really watch out for is Saudi. Right. Saudi is changing so fast. And the size of the market in Saudi is a lockstep ahead of anything that you could generate from the UAE. And so Saudi really is the one to watch Vision 2030 strategy and the amount of work that's going on in Saudi with these landmark projects. It really is quite exceptional to watch. And I think it's only just starting. Where's the UAE in terms of things like open banking? I should know this, but I don't really. Regulations-wise and technology-wise, then we have a pretty healthy open banking scene. So there are, I guess, two major open banking fintech companies, one Bahrain-born actually called Tarabut Gateway that's now based in the UAE and one called Lean that's in Saudi. However, we're not really seeing practical use cases being adopted. These companies have been around for two years, maybe two and a half, approaching three years now. Both Lean and Tarabut Gateway have got a substantial amount of funding and have been able to raise on second you know, funding cycles as well. Unless there's something going on behind the scenes that I'm not seeing, I just don't see traction. And I think a lot of that, 
again, has got to do with the type of use cases that maybe they're focusing on. You know, the consumer stuff is where everybody tends to start, you know, with those aggregation services and new consumer app layers to consolidate, you know, multiple backend service providers in one place. That's not really taken off. I think the combination of open banking, payment gateway, issuing capability with an embedded finance type model, particularly in B2B use cases, when someone gets that right, and I'm hoping it's going to be us, we're certainly working towards these things, then that's going to be where growth really starts to drive. I think that consumer is always going to be a difficult market. And consumers in this part of the world are quite fickle. A lot of the take-up for consumer wallet and neobanking-type products is loyalty and reward-led rather than somebody saying, oh, that looks like a cool idea, I'm going to use that as my day-to-day banking application. It's more like this wallet is giving us 5% cash back this month, so we use that one. As soon as the 5% cash back drops off, they'll move back to the one that they were using before, or they'll go back to using their debit card. So I think the transformation in B2B payments is still where there's the most kind of you know blue ocean to dive into. And I don't think that's too dissimilar to what the real success stories that we've seen across Europe has been where, you know, interchange fees have been given back to the consumer as some kind of reward, or they've charged lower fees for international transfers, et cetera, et cetera, right? And I recently wrote an article about has fintech really provided real benefits to the end consumer? Yeah, it's given some discounts, but, you know, all that we hear really, the big noise on fintech is all about the funding. How many rounds of funding? How much funding? How many companies have been spawned and funded, et cetera, right? But we don't really hear too much of, well, and this is how the end consumer is benefiting. There's a lot around better user experiences, et cetera. But improved customer journeys hasn't really been the case, I think. And I think that's also what's happening in the UAE. It seems to be like that. Yeah, I think you're right. In all of these consumer applications, you're right. The story is around funding and growth. You know, But ultimately, they're raising money. And they're giving that money back to consumers through incentives to drive units. Yeah. And there aren't very many exits, are there? No. You look at where we are right now in terms of, you know, growth funding for fintech companies. Really, you have to say companies, I would say like us, that have tried to follow some fairly basic sustainable business practices, like trying to make a profit. (laughs) <laughs> having a pathway <laughs> to making a profit rather than just raising as much money as possible so that you can drive your customer acquisition costs and drive up your numbers, you know, by forcefully acquiring customers based on incentives that you actually can't afford to give away if you've got a sustainable business model. Right? And I think that's why you have to look for business use cases and commercial models where there's some depth in the market, but also there's higher transaction values and higher revenues to be generated as well. That is fundamentally the reason why we went down the B2B payments path rather than going down, you know, a consumer neobanking strategy back in 2017, 2018, when that was flavor of the month at the time. Fantastic. Well, listen, we could chat about this for a very long time. Time's up, but I just thought, you know, very succinctly, could you kind of just give us a view as where NDigital could be going next and a bit of the future? You know, we've got a long way to go. So we're not a startup. We're growth stage. We're just about hit our flat. You know, unlike many other companies in our space, we've not raised 
huge amounts of money from VC because the company has been funded, you know, organically from our co-founders. And so the profile of our business is very, very different to those VC-backed growth at all costs type businesses. And I think our strategy now is to continue to drive the growth that we've seen up until now, monetize the assets and the capabilities that the business has already got. To do that, it's pretty much more the same. We're concentrating on our people, identifying decent quality talent that we can train and develop and to promote from within. We're focusing on developing partnerships. And so a lot of our business model is around co-sell rather than try to go out and acquire customers directly. We're working with partners that will deliver us volume and help us to extend the reach that we've got. So pretty much more of the same. And, you know, we're hoping that that will get us into a position where the company is profitable by the end of this calendar year. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. And it is Eid, so you've joined us on your holidays as well. So Eid Mubarak, and, you know, we really appreciate you taking the time to chat to us. Yeah. It's been fascinating. And, you know, I'd really like to come back, revisit the conversation, talk more about the Middle East as a powerhouse for innovation and fintech going forward. But I really appreciate you spending time with us today. Great. It was fantastic to speak to you both. Great. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Dan Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.